We are doing lesson one uh, in present truth in Deuteronomy. Uh, and the lesson title is Preamble to Deuteronomy. And uh, the memory verse is 1 John 4, 8, which says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Great. Yeah, great is actually right, yes. What does it mean, though? What does it mean to know God? To experience him, right. It's not simply knowing about, is it? It's a personal connection with, exactly. And so in John 17, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and us sent. And then Jesus went on to read in John 17, um, verse 11, and then verses 20 to 23. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will be, who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is Jesus praying for here? He's praying for us, but what's he praying for us for? Harmony of mind and heart. Okay, harmony, mind, heart, praying together. Okay. Um, how does this connect to our memory verse? which is, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Is, are they connected? Can a person have a cognitive knowledge of God and still not know God? Can a person be a preacher of Scripture and still not know God? What about those who crucified Christ? They claimed belief in God, didn't they? What about those who at the end of time say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name? Never knew you. Never knew you. As events unfold on planet Earth right now, today, what's the difference between the children of God and the children of wickedness? Is it church membership? Is that the difference? And I don't mean the universal, invisible church, triumphant, talking about organizational church membership. Is that the difference between the, the righteous and the wicked? If they love God supremely, how will they treat others? As God treats us. Will those who love God use the power of the state to force others, or will those who love God refuse to unite with the state in compelling other consciences? Just understand that. I mean, we are seeing people settle. The shaking is happening right now, settling. I can't tell you how many Christians are out there articulating and arguing for the methods of the state under the umbrella of loyalty to God. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, and we're going to read the first four paragraphs. First John 4, 8 says, God is love. However simple those three, three words, the idea behind them is so deep, so profound, that we can barely grasp their implication. They don't say that God loves or that God reveals love or that God is a manifestation of love, but that God is love. 
is love, as if love is an essence of God's identity himself. As fallen human beings with only a few pounds of tissue and chemicals in our heads with which to grasp reality, we just aren't able to comprehend the f- fully what God is love means. But we can certainly understand enough to know that it's very good news. If instead of God is love, the verse said God is hate, or God is vindictive, or God is indifferent, this revelation about him could have, some, have been something, something to worry about. And the truth that God is love helps us better understand the idea of the government, of God's government, how he rules all of creation, is a reflection of that love. Love permeates the cosmos, perhaps even more than gravity does. God, God loves us, and we too are to love God back in return. Love, love though, to be love, must be freely given. God cannot force love. The moment he does, it's no longer love. Hence, when God created intelligent and rational beings in heaven and on earth with the ability to love, the risk always existed that they might not love him back. Some didn't, and hence here, hence there exists the origins of what we know as the great controversy. Well said. Congratulations, Cliff Goldstein. I want to commend you for this, who is the principal contributor, not just the editor. He's the principal contributor. This is well said indeed. God being love is the truth. Now, is God being love something that is turned off and on depending on circumstances? No. Is there a time when God is something other than love? A time ever when God is something other than love. Is there a time when love can ever function without freedom? Is there a time when love will take freedom away? If that love, if the freedom of a person, say in a psychiatric episode or malevolent episode, would kill others or damage others and so on, they are restrained. Their freedom is restrained. So, what about discipline? Does a parent ever take a child and put him in time out? And does the government ever imprison a convicted murderer? And why are liberties restrained in these circumstances? Is it to inflict judicial punishment upon them? What is the purpose to restrain liberty? Why would love lock somebody away in a prison cell? What's the purpose of that? So they won't harm others. Okay, there's truth in that. Say, say, say it, Russell. They're not afraid to harm themselves, their own character. Yes, what happens to the heart, mind, and character of the person who perpetrates evils on others? When we restrain somebody from doing evil, we do protect the innocent. But when they, when they crucified Christ, did they destroy Christ? When Stephen was stoned, was Stephen destroyed? He was killed. He wasn't destroyed. What were they doing to their own characters? What were they doing to their own souls? See, in God's perspective, love will restrain to limit the damage, not just to the innocent, but also to the wicked. 
Satan will use the wicked to try to interfere with the advancement of righteousness, the advancement of truth and love. Love and the, and the righteous use of, uh, of power is, and this is a, maybe a discussion we ought to have. Where do you draw that line? The righteous use of power is in restraining other people from actively harming others. That's the righteous use. As soon as you cross the line to use power to force other people to take actions in governance of themselves, you've crossed the line. For instance, there's a principle being advanced in society today that that is uh, dominating a lot of decision-making. That principle is the, the need to save lives. Well, if we forced everybody to give bone marrow, we could save a lot of people who die of leukemia. Think about all the lives we could save. We forced people to do that. And bone marrow is a little bit of an inconvenience. There really generally is no long-term risk of a bone marrow uh, donation. It's painful and uncomfortable. But certainly if you love your neighbor, we would all be willing to comply with federal mandates that we all donate bone marrow, wouldn't we? I mean, it's to save lives. Isn't that righteous use of power to force people to do that? I don't... Don't suggest it to them. <laughs> so restraining people from actively harming, and, and this is the idea they will say if you don't get the vaccine, if you're unvaccinated, you're actually actively harming. This is a lie. Just because someone is unvaccinated doesn't mean they actually are infected. Doesn't mean they're actually carrying any type of a agent or pathogen that could harm somebody. There are, what, I've estimated 80 million Americans that have natural immunity and recovered. They, they are not carers. They are, they actually have better immunity than the vaccinated. But that is irrelevant on this question. Mandates are what's important to coerce conscience. So the righteous use of power is to restrain, not to force people to comply with actions that you believe, but you have to construct this, and it's confecting and damaging minds. Is there a time when justice will require God to take away freedom? What actually takes away our freedoms? And we will lose them if we don't um, stay united with Jesus. We will lose our liberty. But what takes away our liberty? God and the use of judicial power to throw us in hell or the law of liberty sin itself what happens to the sinner who sins what happens to what happens to any person on any of God's laws that you violate if you break any of his laws what happens to you you break the laws of health you smoke two packs a day do you get better lung function? Over the course of time, can you climb the, the stairs of the Eiffel Tower? <laughs> You're not going to be able to. You've lost liberty. You've lost freedom. It was not an infliction. It's not a punishment. We always lose liberties out of harmony with God's laws. Always. Only in harmony with God's laws do we have real freedom.
So what actually happens then to the wicked in the end? How does God bring about the end of the sinner and sin itself without taking away their freedom? Well, I'm going to read from a book called The Great Controversy. We're going to unpack a section starting in page 541. God has given men a declaration of his character and of his methods of dealing with sin. Yes, he has, because God always speaks the truth. Does God win, though, his case with a declaration? Did God stop with a declaration? Or did God, in addition to a declaration, a description, a speaking the truth to enlighten us, did he also demonstrate in the life of Jesus how he functions and how his law works? So it's more than just, but yes, he did declare, yes. He didn't even start with a declaration. He started with providing evidence via creation. Well, I was just going to say, uh, in the uh, if you go back and read in Patriarchs and Prophets, the early chapters, you'll discover that in heaven, when Satan started his allegations, that God actually called a council and made a declaration of the truth about all these things. <laughs> okay. Sure. So... Um, so there was an initial the evidence was secondary. So there was an initial declaration, but then they also began giving evidence too. So continue with the quote. Um, the declaration is uh, in Exodus thirty four six and seven. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, that by and by no means will clear the guilty. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressor shall be destroyed together, and the end of the wicked shall be cut off. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, unbenevolent, and a benevolent being. Now, do those things sound almost contradictory to you? Retributive justice, using power to put down rebellion, which is a manifestation of mercy, long-suffering, and benevolence. The only way you can make sense of this, and we will show you, is through design law. There is no contradiction here. And hopefully as you read this author, you have other quotes that come to mind, like some we just read in the last lesson. Continue on with this quote. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of love. Pause. Does not force the will or judgment of any? But he says, if you don't love me, I'll use the power of my divine government and my divine might to bring retributive justice upon you to make sure I put down rebellion. But I'm not forcing at all. You're completely free. Do you hear any tension as those things are presented? If you hear either of those descriptions through the typical human law model, there is tension there. There is an actual liberty. God is bringing power to bear that would not otherwise be reaped. But when you understand design law, God sustains his laws and violations of his laws are what actually caused the damage and the sinner to die in the end, not God. Like a person who ties a plastic bag over their head and breaks a law of respiration, it is the breaking of the law that causes their demise, and if they refuse to be put back in harmony with the law, then they reap the destruction that their actions bring. Let's keep on with the quote, and you'll see it all, all described here. 
He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence that requires them to understand design law. I will just tell you, you cannot have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence as long as you think his law functions like Rome. Truly, you can't do it. It's not possible. If you think his law functions like Rome and he must use power to torture and kill, then you do not have a comprehension of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have just have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him and admiration of his attributes. And yes, we do. When I had this transition from being, from the way I was raised in an imperial law view of a punishing God to seeing God as creator and his laws as design laws, it changed my appreciation for God. Did it not yours? The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught, taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript in the will of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from the Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your neighbor. Or excuse me, love your enemies. Love your enemies is what it says. Wait a minute. Love your enemy? Love your enemy is the principle. Remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about how God puts down rebellion. We're talking about his, his, his retributive justice is in perfect harmony with the principles of his character. And the principles of his character were exemplified in Christ. And this principles of the divine government, here it is, the principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your enemy. So he's going to put down the rebellious in harmony with the principle of love your enemies. How does that work? Again, it requires an understanding of design law. When you understand design law, then you can understand how God eliminates sin and sinners as a perfect manifestation of love. And we're going to go there. This, this author describes it. God execute justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those whom his judgments are visited. It's for their good? What? Execute justice? What is justice? What is it? Doing what's right, doing what's just. Is it right to give people freedom to choose? Is it right to let people reap what they have chosen even after, after repeated attempts to warn them and win them to a better way? Is it right to, if they insist on going their own way, to let them? Yes. And when, do, and when does God let the wicked go to reap what they've chosen while they're still healable and savable and more truth and love would win them over or when they've destroyed within themselves the faculties that respond to truth and no more truth and love would have any impact on them? When does he actually let them go? When they're beyond healing and they're beyond reach. And how is it good for the wicked for God to do this? How is it good for them, for him to let them go and reap annihilation? How is that good for them? Because if God did not let the wicked go to reap what they prefer and what they want, if God held on to them despite their hardened and rebellious hearts, then God would create by his power a place of torture and torment. And God will never do this, even though the whole Christian world teaches that he does. 
Thus, for mercy, for love, for the best outcomes of the wicked, he executes justice, the right thing for them, and sets them free from him, the only source of life. Continuing on with the quote. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. What are the laws of his government? What kind of laws are they? Design laws, truth, love, freedom. Yes. He surrounds them with tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offers of his mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Decided by whom? A judge in heaven looking over record books and having somebody plead and making legal uh, uh, application of blood payments to the account so that the judge can declare them righteous even though they're still wicked? Did you, did you just hear that? Did it just sound completely stupid? And that's what's being taught in, in, many, in many Christian churches, including the Adventist church. It's sad. It's not reality-based. It's fantasy. It misrepresents God. It obstructs people from experiencing the reality of what Christ would do in them if they saw the truth of who God is and what he's trying to do. A decisive hour will come. At last, when their destiny is to be decided, and it's decided by them, in, in what kind of decision? Is it going to be decided by them in a evangelistic altar call to partake in a ritualistic communion feast, to be baptized in a certain way? What is going to determine their decision? Won't it be whether they embrace Jesus as their Savior and his laws into their hearts that they live out and how they treat others? As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Or they, re, they claim so they can feel righteous and virtuous that they're a follower of Jesus and all their sins have been paid and they believe in all the legal adjustment stuff and they're going to be like him and virtuously go out and punish those who are living out of harmony with what their view of morality is. And they harden themselves in the character of Satan while they proclaim the name of Jesus. They will decide. We will all decide. Continue on. Will he chain these rebels at his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Why? They get up to heaven and there's a gatekeeper and he asks for their pass and and they don't have the, the blood payment to pay him off to get in. Why are they not prepared? Because he forces them to see in that respect that he's pure truth. Is it because they're not prepared because if God saw them entering his presence with the wickedness and rebellion still in their heart, that God would be offended and outraged and hostile and angry and wrathful and lash out? How dare you come into my presence, you wicked person? Is that why? They're not prepared. 
God can't handle it? Continue on with the quote. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Fixed by whom? How does something become fixed in a character? Can God create character in people? No. No. It becomes fixed by the choices of the person and how they practice the methods and principles, who they trust and what methods they practice. We fix it in our characters. This is what's happening right now in the world. It's your opportunity to embrace the principles of God and fix it into your character and how you treat others. Truth, love, and liberty. Or you can fix Satan's principle into your character by putting mandates on your employees. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those whom they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those who live, could, could, could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb, the ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Pause. What do you think this light looks like? From where does it come? Do you integrate text when you read things like this, streams of light flowing from his face? Do you think of uh, Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, the Ancient of Days took its throne and, stream, and rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 are standing in this fire. Or Hebrews twelve twenty nine, our God is a consuming fire, but, but the righteous stand and it bathes us. Even Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they lost that light. And then they felt cold and naked and so on, but they were filled with that light. And so, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is the bright as the sun, and Elijah and Moses in their immortal bodies are also bright like suns. Do the righteous get injured by this bright light, fiery stuff? Why not? Because it's not harmful God doesn't perform a miracle to shield us from radiation or photonic warheads or some type of combustion flamethrowers he isn't shielding the the fire is not harmful what happens to the wicked when they're exposed to it what is actually harmful the fire or sin. Sin is harmful. To sin wherever is found, our God is a consuming fire. It's not a chemical reaction. I mean, it's like that. You've got two things that you need. Yeah, catalyst. From where does the pain come? Does the pain and suffering come from the fire? Or does the pain and suffering come from unremoved sin in the heart and mind of the wicked? 
Continuing with the quote, could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth, of holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join in their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be tortured to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. What's being described here? A judicial process? A ruling? An arbitrary infliction of some legal um, penalty? Do you integrate Bible texts like when they see Jesus coming, they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne? Same process being described here is that. Why do they want to be hidden from him who sits on the throne? When Jesus returns, what will the righteous say when they see his face? We will see him face to face for we shall be like him, but those who are not like him beg for the mountains to fall. Does Jesus come two-faced, smiles at us, frowns at them? Or is it the same face? It's the same face. It's the face of infinite love and infinite truth, but the hearts hardened in sin hate love and hate truth. And they get a glimpse as the fires of infinite love and truth flow out. It impacts them and the darkness of their own corrupt inner world, their lies, their distortions, their, their corruption, the shadows that they operate within are enlightened with truth and they get some sense of who they really are and the pain they've caused others and they don't want to see it. You get a little glimpse of this if you've ever had to deal with somebody in your circle of, of friends or family that is currently living a, uh, let's say, rebellious or unruly lifestyle, and you try to have a heart-to-heart with them to bring to bear their own negligent lifestyle. They don't want to hear it. They, and if you, and they'll initially deny, they'll, they'll deflect, they'll deny, they'll excuse me, they'll blame, but if you have the evidence to actually hold them accountable and show it, They'll get angry and they'll get hostile. They'll attack you if they can. To bring it even closer to home, parents can understand that because there's no perfect parent. When you when you look back and think about things you've done that affected your children, and then you see them uh, turn and their their kids start copying them and st- copying the bad things instead of learning from them. It strikes the heart to think, you know, not only did this child not learn from my mistakes, but now they're replicating them onto the next child. They're hurting others like I hurt them. And that is a a tremendous pain, even done voluntarily as thinking, or if something comes up and makes you remember that. It's only a pain in the heart of the repentant. It is not a pain in the heart of the unrepentant. In the heart of the unrepentant, many of those people will validate that. The racist who raises a racist child will be glad to see their child abuse somebody of another race. So it's only a pain in the heart of the person who's been repentant and sees where they could have done things differently. 
The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. The destiny of the way, so we, we had a, their destiny is to be decided. It's fixed by their own choice. The exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Do you see how now his retributive justice that we talked about is perfectly in harmony with his character of mercy and love and truth? And that he never compels and he never coerces. And what happens in the end, they're exposed to the reality of God's life-giving presence and glory. He doesn't inflict anything on them. He just stops shielding them from his presence. And they don't like God's universe and reality, and they don't want to be there, and they voluntarily surrender their lives back. He never, ever inflicts judicial execution upon them. That's the lie of Rome. Monday's lesson... The lesson points out that Isaac Newton didn't discover gravity. Everyone, it's, it points out, uh, knew that if you, if you fell out of a tree, you'd hit the ground. Everybody understood uh, that, uh, that gravity was operational, that Isaac Newton simply discovered the law of gravity, and that, and that there's a constant there that the universe operates upon. Uh, and then the lesson goes on to describe that the... Uh, that in the area of natural law that, uh, that he contributed to, that the same principle holds true with the moral law, that it's a constant. Again, well done uh, for the lesson to point this out. That's exactly right. Uh, moral law is just like the natural law. It's a constant that reality is built to function upon, and it doesn't change. Here's a beautiful description of a book called Education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life in the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. Same laws, guys. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation... The condition is the same, a life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the Creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place one's self out of harmony with the universe and to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. Brilliant! That's design law. There's nothing Judicial, there's nothing penal legal. It's simply how the Creator built reality to operate. The lesson points out that God destroyed the world with a flood. We have gone over that many times in the last couple of quarters, so I didn't put anything in the notes to go over it again. I'll just make a pause and ask Does anyone have a question about God's role in the flood? Okay, good. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Lesson asks us to read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which reads, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And then the lesson asks, Today, looking back after the cross, 
after the death of Jesus and the spreading of the gospel, how do we understand what God was promising to do through Abram? What do you understand? What was God promising here? Okay, the line through which the Savior would come. So the, the nations of the world would be blessed through Jesus. And the purpose then, the purpose of the biologic descendants of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Get your mind around that. It wasn't just the descendants of Abram. Descendants of Isaac and Jacob. You can see that we don't focus, the Bible's attention doesn't focus on the descendants of Ishmael, which are also descended from Abraham. They don't focus on the descendants of Esau, which are also the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Why do we focus there? Because of the promise of Genesis 3.15. And then the identification that it would be through Abram's descendants that promise would be fulfilled. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, Messiah. The whole Old Testament focus is on the coming Messiah and the battle between them. That's why we focus on this one family through history, and we don't focus on the Chinese or other people. It's not because God doesn't love them, but Messiah was only coming through this branch of the human family, and that's where our attention is drawn. This is where the battle is. This is where Satan is trying to obstruct God's plan. And this is where God is working to bring it forward. Forward. And so the purpose of ancient Israel was to be messengers of God, <clears throat> helpers to share the knowledge of God, and the actual literal biological branch of the family tree through which Messiah would come. This was their purpose. Prepare the world for the first advent. The lesson at the bottom in the pink um, asks the question, today, how do the, we as a Seventh-day Adventist see ourselves in relation to the rest of the world? Do we see, does the Adventist church see itself as being called to fulfill a purpose or a mission? Yes, no. Okay. Like the Jews were called to prepare the world for the first advent, Seventh-day Adventists see their purpose in calling the world to prepare for the second advent. Would you agree with that? The SDA church shares several elements in common with the Jewish nation, the ancient Israel. They both uh, honor the Seventh-day Sabbath. They both have a sanctuary message. They both have a healthy lifestyle message. They both have an Advent message. They both have the inspired Word of God. And what is the purpose of these resources that I just went through here? Sabbath, sanctuary, health message. What was the purpose of them? New Testament, Paul talks about that these were given and they were an advantage to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people didn't take advantage of all that was given them and they ended up rejecting the Messiah and were not ready for his advent. But there was being an advantage in every way to be Jewish because of all these things that they were given. I believe there is an advantage to be an Adventist. But is the Adventist church very similar to the Jewish nation? Yeah. 
having all these advantages and called for a purpose, yet not necessarily taking advantage of all that was given. So let's, let's talk about the advantages, the purpose of these common resources. The Seventh-day Sabbath, how is it an advantage? It's designed Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, truly, the Seventh-day Sabbath exists because of creation, ties it straight back to creator, ties it straight back to the laws that creation operate upon, and takes you right back to worshiping him who made the heavens and the earth. And then it, 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 it insulates us and protects us from the Roman imperial lie. And there, there's the physiological. Yes, it does that mental and physiological. Reminder of, of God's is the one who makes us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. We don't have to work for it. It's a gift. So we, we recognize the truth that our creator built reality to operate in harmony with his own character. We recognize the truth that sin is a condition of being out of harmony with that character. We recognize the truth that God sent Christ to fix the condition we couldn't fix. And we recognize the truth and we trust him. The spirit takes the victory of Christ and puts it in us. And it distresses us and it heals us. It's a tremendous blessing. And then each week it's an opportunity to practice that trust by setting aside our need to make money and and advance our own interests on this planet, we set it aside each week and trust him with those outcomes. It's an opportunity to practice our trust. Every year's tendency to idolatry. You make idolatry of all the things that you desire from your work and from your other time. And then the sanctuary message. How is this a blessing? What is the purpose of the sanctuary message? Only if you first understand reality, reality, which means design law. If you understand the Sabbath through Roman law, which many Adventists or Jews did, it's a system of rules, you got to keep it, you got 600 and other rules, you got to pin your, your handkerchief to your thing because you can't carry it on Sabbath, you only walk so many steps, you can't, you can't put your elevator, you got to do the So it's like the most stressful day of the week. You're not free, you're enslaved if you, if you teach it through imposed law. Same thing with the sanctuary message. If you approach the sanctuary message through an imperial law model, it becomes destructive and corrosive to character, not healing. <coughs> but if you see it through design law, then you actually understand it's a metaphor, it's a little teaching tool, it's a little theater, which, which is teaching the reality of God restoring in us his living law so that we were who are dead in trespass and sin become living and bring about fruits of righteousness. It's the plan of bringing us back into unity or oneness with God. And, and we have uh, lectures on our website for those who don't know. Go to our resource section. You'll find a lecture all about the symbolism of the sanctuary and what it teaches. We also have our um, Heavenly Sanctuary in the Modern World pamphlet uh, available to teach what's really happening and how God is healing hearts and minds and preparing us to meet him. What about the health message and life, uh, health lifestyle message that we have? How is that a benefit to us? We can think more clearly. We can uh, be an example to others. So, so one immediate benefit is the physiological better health that keeps us uh, more useful for God's cause and clearer minds. Yes. Serve. We can serve others. Serve others, yes. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness. That's exactly right. Happiness is a byproduct of healthiness in all the domains. So we are happier for healthier and... All these things are true. There's multiple reasons. And one more. Revelation of design law. Thank you. It is the most powerful revelation of design law that essentially every person can connect with. You can't have health in the viol- by violating the laws of health. 
And you can't have spiritual health while violating the laws of spiritual health, the moral laws, the design laws. It's all, it's all connected. It teaches. That's why it's the right arm of the, of the mission, of the mission, of the ministry. What about the Advent message? Why is the Advent message an advantage to us? We can have our priorities. Thank you. We're in the world, but we're, 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 if we keep the truth, if we really believe the Advent is soon, that Jesus is coming soon, it diminishes the value we attach to the things of the world. They become less important, don't they? It increases the value of people. There you go. And it increases the value of people and the need to share the message. But if we believe in Jesus, and I can tell you, I ask my Christian patients uh, when the times are appropriate to ask, um, do you believe in the second coming of Christ? Most of them do in a theoretical sense. Yeah, but it won't happen in my lifetime. It'll happen someday. I'll go to heaven when I die. And most Christians anticipate heaven at their death, not at an immediate return that's eminent in the near future. If you have eyes to see, to discern, you can see the movements are happening, folks. I believe the movements are happening right now. The, the, the beast is, is organizing and, and shaping right now. The Advent message gives us hope in the face of earthquakes, raging fires, uh, climate change, pandemics, uh, coercive governments. The Advent message gives us hope. This is not the end. We have a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. It gives us hope. It gives us perspective. It gives us freedom from the, from the stressors of this world. It, 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 we are sojourners here like the ancients were. We know we have a home and a better land. We long for that better land. And then the inspired record, the inspired word of God. What usefulness is it to us? Do you know there's a real attack on the inspired word? All types of attacks on it. Don't value it. Don't use it. It's all just myth. The written word protects us from mysticism through human experiences and from godlessness through science. When we use the written word, integrating it with human experiences and science, the integrative evidence-based approach, we can discern godly truths because God speaks to us in his written word he speaks to us in science and nature and he speaks to us in life experiences and we have to anchor all of our interpretations into the written word where God reveals himself to us and he reveals the plan of salvation he reveals the problem of sin he reveals how he deals with things through history he deals with ha- I mean seriously the whole thing we should learn to see the, the word as a whole and compare all the parts to the central theme and how it all fits together do you have that vision it's an incredible perspective and the written word gives us a platform to discern reality. And then when you see events happening in the world, you can see them in their setting of the great controversy, the two antagonistic principles, because you've anchored yourself in the written word. And you understand certain methods don't, don't, don't get used by God's people, regardless of the intended cause or goal. So when you, uh, let me ask you this question. We'll, we'll, we'll spend just a minute or two on it and we'll close with this. 
If someone were to say to you, I understand you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you have a message for the world, what is that message that the Adventist church is called to take to the world? And you're on an elevator ride. You've got about 45 seconds. What do you tell them? God loves you, she said. That would certainly be a worthwhile message. How would that message be different than John Wesley, who said, What then is the mark? Who is a Methodist, according to your own account? I answer, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him, unto one who loves the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee, my God and my all. Thou art my strength of my heart and my portion for forever. So how would that message, God God loves you, be different than John Wesley? And if it's not different than John Wesley, then what's the purpose of the Adventist church? Do we have something more to share? The character of God, which is God is love, which is the message of Wesley. But what did Wesley not have? My view... Full understanding of God's law. Yes, My view is what makes our message powerful and unique is the truth of God's character of love in the setting of the great controversy, which is the antagonistic governments, God's design law of love and how love functions in the design laws of life, the creator, versus the imperial law of Satan's kingdom of rules over and authority. This is the big difference. And Wesley knew that God was love, and I I love what Wesley wrote. I don't think he had an appreciation of the full implications of the great controversy, nor the design laws of God and how they function. And that, and, and that false assumption, I will just tell you, as long as you still, even though you know God is love, you still live in a world in which you believe his law functions like human law, it perverts, warps, distorts every other teaching in Christianity. You get the explanation of the atonement from people who still operate there. Even though they know God is love and they see the love of Jesus. Well, why did Jesus have to die? You will get some penal, legal dance around. You, you, you ask, well, what, what is hell? What, what is the eternal fires, consuming fire, eternal burning? What is that? You get some dance around. Uh, everything gets warped. It is only when we come back to design law and we present it in this setting, it transcends across all denominational boundaries because it is the, it is the, the presentation of reality, how reality actually works. And we, when we, and we divest ourselves from this penal legal fantasy, this fraud. So I think we have a tremendous message, and I think it's the message of reality, of God's character, and how he built reality to operate. And each person today is deciding which law they prefer, what methods they'll they'll apply to their life, and therefore what character they develop, and what God they're loyal to. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your truth. We pray that you will um, pour your spirit into our hearts, take the victories of Christ, reproduce it in us, and give us power to take your true final message to the world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.